Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 28, Inside Our Delusion. How does God want us to participate in what he's doing? What happens when we're trapped in fear? And why did we invent religion to find a way to God? Join us as we pick up the second half of Steve's conversation with Baxter Kruger. If you haven't already, be sure to listen to episode 27 first. You asked me yesterday, Baxter, do I think that that this is a, a time, I don't know how you worded it, but of acceleration and spiritual activity. And without awakening. a doubt, yeah, awakening, without a doubt, without a doubt, we're seeing things happen faster than we could ever imagine. Um, you, you know, I just came back, my wife and I just came back from Africa about, I don't know, eight or nine days ago. And uh, what we saw was beyond what we could hope or even imagine, to quote Paul, because it really was. And that's not kind of the usual kind of we can fall into hyperbole. It was remarkable. And uh, not only because thousands have discovered Christ and are being discipled, but because the, there's, the lives are being changed all over. So this is a time, you know, I, I stood up in front of a congregation in America on Sunday, and I, uh, I just said, I don't remember the words, I'm sure I was polite, but what I was really wanting to say is, wake up and smell the coffee. This is not business as usual. God is moving in absolutely unprecedented ways. And, uh, and he's calling us. He's calling us into the great adventure. Because after all, the Great Commission is, is so vital for me. And I think that, that his greater story is all about this revelation of who he is coming to all of creation. And who we are in him. And exactly who we are, who we are in him, which is, it's so interesting. You know, I've taught a lot of pastors in the last seven weeks in different countries. And uh, one of the things I've told them is God never created us for meetings. He created us for family. And the Trinity is family, and we're invited into that family. And it's like they've never heard it before. And these mm. are these are good men and women, but it's like mm. what? Um, because we have been, we've had way too small of a gospel for too long, you know. Uh, come to yeah, church, it's a small uh, Jesus. Yeah, come to Jesus. Come to church. Be good. Go to heaven. Uh, I don't. I don't think the early church would have, by any stretch, recognized that gospel and not at all the real gospel not at all is uh, i'm watching it change in t- i'm not kidding i'm watching it change entire communities now uh in different parts of the world and that's the power of this real gospel that i i think you're talking about today it's the undiluted gospel the truth of all truths and um you were talking about coming and participate uh in in what you're doing and uh, I, my mind went immediately back to John 2 and to uh, the transformation of the water and the wine. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a simple story. And John, it's not in the other Gospels, and John puts it first. Um, and it hit me one day that um, if you have the power to transform water into wine, why do you ask the servants to get water for you? Why don't you just go over there and make wine? And, and I think that it's... it's Deliberate, yes. John John is placing this deliberately there, uh, just like he does John the Baptist in the prologue, and he says there there is the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't understand it. There came a man sent out from the presence of God. Um, is it the 
from creation on, the Lord is not going to be Lord without human participation. Yes. yes. And so he said, he said, I don't need you to make wine, but I'm not going to do it without you participating. So who's going to get the water? You can never turn it into wine, and I'm not going to give you a Harry Potter magic Christian wand so that you can do it without me. It's us. I am the Lord, and I'm going to change water into wine, so who wants to participate? And it, and you can better you better believe that everyone in that town knew who those servants were from that day forward. Yes. They, they knew that those servants got to participate. And all they did was get water. I would have complained and grumbled. It's, it's, uh, like, come on, man, we need wine. We don't need water. And it's way over there. And it's 180 gallons. And this is going to be a lot of work. And why are we doing this? This is, this is, you know, not, this is not a good idea. But I think John is putting it right at the beginning of the story because he said this is about our participation in what the Father, Son, and Spirit are doing because we're included in this. And so we can either do it our own way and create more, more chaos or we can stop and say, Lord, what are you doing today? How do you want me to participate today? And we take our sacred secular glasses off and think, oh, you want me to rake my yard today and I can rake my yard with you. So it's not just breaking the yard anymore. I'm participating. Uh, you want me to love my family. You want me to go uh, pick up the phone and call someone. So we, we're participating. And so when we talk about turning the lights on, it's the Holy Spirit who turns the lights on, but the Holy Spirit's not going to do that without our participation. Exactly. And, there's a, and there's a direct relationship between um, preaching. This is the word kerygma in the New Testament, which is translated preaching. Uh, and I don't know how else to translate it, but preaching does not mean the exegesis or the, the preaching of, of a, an Old or a New Testament text. Kerygma is when you proclaim Christ in you to the, the congregation or to the assembled people. You proclaim Christ in you, the hope of glory, from a position inside of yourself where you are coming to know that this is the truth. And in that conviction and that proclamation, Jesus testifies to himself inside the other people. This is true. He bears witness and the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirits that this is true. And so the Christian life is lived from that place of witness in here. And it's going to blow our minds and reconstruct our minds. And as we do, we get to live more freely in that relationship and, and participate more freely. We hear the Lord speak to us more readily. We, we begin to, to recognize his voice a lot more quickly than we did. Um, but we participate and, and it's, he's not going to change the world or let me rephrase that. He's not going to, um, uh, wave a wand and make the light shine everywhere without our participation, because that would be to assume that we're not included in his life. Yes. Hmm. Boy, oh boy, do I ever agree with you. <laughs> and, and this is part of the joy of the gospel that we we do he calls us to participate you you mentioned your your two granddaughters i've got 13 grandchildren and uh, you know we're you know i'm looking over here and there's a big tree with leaves and they're going to be down in another three weeks and i'm going to do what i do every year i'm going to call some of my grandkids you want to come over and help papa blow the leaves right mm -hmm. and i could do it three times faster without them but it's oh, yeah. the joy it's the joy of watching them and they feel so engaged and so connected to me because they're doing something with me. And that's the beauty. That's one of the things we love in taking people out is they discover they really were made for the kingdom of God. They were made for the gospel. And there's this incredible sense of partnership with the Lord. 
and it's it's humbling and and honoring at the same time. And um, when you were telling your story about your granddaughter come, grandchildren coming and blowing the leaves with you, it takes three, four more you know times long, yeah. longer. But that's not this. The story I tell came back to my mind about the master uh, carpet weaver who is uh, the most famous and certainly greatest master carpet weaver in the world. And he's got a, uh, a six year old or a granddaughter. And since she was old enough to speak, she has been pestering him to uh, let her help him make a carpet. And so on her sixth birthday, he presents to her two needles and he teaches her two or three, uh, stitches. And he sets her up on one end and says, go ahead and start. And I'll start on this end. And the truth is that she actually never got a single stitch right. Not one, not even one stitch did she ever get right. And the carpet weaver is so brilliant that he's steadily incorporating her mistakes into his overall design so that when they get finished, it's another masterpiece. Uh, that, that, the Holy Spirit, we're playing, we're playing checkers, horizontal, one dimension. Yeah. The Holy Spirit plays three-dimensional chess. Our moves are real, but there's three dimensions to them. We don't see that until you look back and you can see, oh, my gosh, I am the carpet. And the Holy Spirit has been using my mistakes to turn transform me into a living sacrament of the Father, Son and Spirit. And and I didn't see that coming. I didn't. I was trying to make this happen. I was trying to get crowned. I was trying to make a name for myself. And the Holy Spirit's doing something completely other. So when we dial in and say, stop and say, what are you doing? What do you how would you? What would you want me to do? How do I participate in what you've got going on? Because I don't want to get to the end of my life and turn around and think, man, I was completely wrong the whole time. Mm-hmm. And there's no redemption. I, I can turn back and see that the Lord has taken my wrongs and my mistakes and my miscues mis- and found a way to use those very things as an avenue to reveal Jesus in me so I can participate more clearly. Um, so it's beautiful. And you, when you get there, and it's not about ego, it's not about uh, building and making a name for ourselves or what we're doing mm-hmm. for a distant deity. It's fun. It's yeah, fun. Absolutely. So a lot of uh, our discussion around the Gospel of John has been about this concept of abiding in him. Is this what abiding looks like? Participating in, in what he's doing? In cre- participating in, in the creation of that masterpiece? Yes. It's and, and it and, and Jesus is very clear, um, and in fact, if you in the in, in the uh, the upper room discourse, I, as I said briefly, I think it's a huge chiasm, and at the very point of that chiasm, which is the point, is abide in my love. So that's what when sudden fear comes, we eventually learn to stop, and go back to Jesus in our in our hearts, Jesus. I'm afraid. That means I've gotten uh, estranged in my mind from you because perfect love casts out fear. So, uh, and let me give a quick story about this. Um, well, I can, let me, let me put it this way in the interest of time. When sudden fear happens, that's the Proverbs. We instantly become focused on ourselves and we're no longer focused on people around us or things that are going on around us. And we become, in fear, we become users and even abusers. Uh, I came home one day years ago, and at the red light, um, I was getting ready. I was going straight, and this lady pulls up in this 
brand new, beautiful Mercedes or something, BMW or something. And I'm driving my little Honda Accord with 195,000 miles on it. And, uh, and I'm just sitting there minding my own business. And, and I'll never forget the look in her face. She looked over at me and just rolled her eyes and pulled and turned left. Like, bless your heart, honey. All you got some cord. And I was one mile from my house. By the time I got to my house, I walked in the front door. My children were watching TV. My wife was on the phone cooking supper. And you see, I had become a user. That anxiety, that sudden fear made, I came in that house because I wanted my children to pay attention to me. It was about me. Hmm. And I wanted my wife to pay attention. So I got so angry. I went back out and got in the car and drove around for a little while and came in. And my wife looked at me, she took one look, and she said, what's wrong? And I said, nothing's wrong. You see, and it's just that quick. Uh, sudden fear means we're, we become abusers. And so and when I am calm in my inner world, when I'm abiding in Jesus' love for me, and I'm seeing my father's face in Jesus, I suddenly realize that, that my children are not here for me. I am here for them. And I am here to serve my wife and to be, and I am more alert. And you begin to notice, oh, there's, there's, there's tears here. I see tears. I see, and you begin to notice things around you so you can participate because you couldn't participate because it was all about you. So if you, it, that, that abide in me is abide in my love and you will bear much fruit. And that fruit thrills my father. Because it's our life coming to expression sacramentally in you. And it could be something as simple as um, actually stopping. You've, dro- you've driven by this house for a year. You've seen the gutter has fallen, and it's been there for a year. And all of a sudden, because you're abiding in the love of Jesus and it's calmed you down, you really do notice and you realize that's probably a widow woman. And you stop, and you go knock on the door, and she comes to the door, and you just say, can I fix that gutter for you? That's abiding and participating. That's what Jesus is doing. We, I do, and I think a lot of us do. We tend to do the more grandiose big thing. But Jesus is involved in the details of our lives, and to participate in what he's doing may look like uh, giving uh, the waitress a $100 bill for a tip. Or it may be that Jesus says, I want you to um, stop. I want you to take a break. I want you to go up to the camp and sleep, you know, but that's the, that's the key to everything is it abide in my love and you will bear much fruit. And because apart from me, you can't make anything happen. It's just all a delusion. It's wood, hay and stubble. So abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Um, Paul Young talks, we had um, Francois de Toy, the author of um, the mirror translation uh, and Paul Young and I got to do a cruise in, from Venice all through the Mediterranean about a month ago now. Uh, and we had an interview that my friend Michael LaFleur was there to film it. And we got to talking about this. And Francois was talking about abide in his way of talking about that. And Paul, Paul has a way of talking about what he calls future tripping. And future tripping, uh, to use my language here, is when sudden fear happens, we... Uh, we project into the future of an outcome that we imagine. And that becomes so big to us, it dominates us in the present day, the moment. And so our children and our wives and our friends or our church or whatever is all caught up in that future tripping. And so we lose 
uh, participation in that day. That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's not still weaving something beautiful in it, but our consciousness is we're, we're so wound up by this, and we can spend our entire lives in future tripping in the sense of being afraid of death or afraid of, of financial ruin or afraid that I'm not going to be loved, afraid of this, afraid of that. And, and so Jesus is saying, don't future trip. Because every time you project in the future, you're not, you don't even see me in the future, let alone my love. So stop. Come back to me. Ask me, am I in you? Ask me. Or um, and, and one of the things that bothered, used to bother me a lot about John's gospel is that uh, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple, as the disciple who, whom Jesus loved. And I just thought, man, uh, that is the height of arrogance. Um, and one day it dawned on me, uh, uh, and you know, in in uh, in there's seven, there's two groups of seven I am's in Jesus in, uh, from Jesus in John's Gospel. The ones with the predicate, like I am the bread of life, or the one that we were looking at earlier, I am the way, the truth, and life. And then there's seven I am's without the predicate, just ego I me, I am. Um, before Abraham was, I am. Um, mm-hmm. And then one day I noticed that there's actually an eighth I am without a predicate in John's gospel. And I couldn't believe it. I looked, I went back and looked it up and I thought, Oh my goodness, it's the man born blind. His friends were saying, is it that the man born blind? No, no, it just looks like we see. No. And John says, he kept saying, I am. And when, when I saw that, I suddenly understood about the beloved disciple. John knows that he is the beloved disciple of Jesus. And so are you. But he knows it. And we don't. Mm. And it's almost too grandiose. And so John's saying the way out of blindness, the way out of that darkness is you keep saying, I am. I am the beloved disciple. I'm abiding in his love. Astounding as it is that he would love me, especially as I think I am. That is what we abide in. And it casts out fear. And when fear's gone, we're present. We notice we're, we're able to see things. We see uh, people's hurts. We see the, 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 um, the gutter down. We, we see uh, some, you know, it's just a millions of ways that we begin to notice things and we participate in that. And it brings such joy to us when we do that, not in fear or not to get anything, but to love like yes. the Father, Son, Spirit love. We, we're going to bless you for your sake. Um, that brings great joy. And I think that's what John means in his first epistle when he talks about this is this is fulfilling our joy. This is making our joy full when we get to share this with you and see what happens inside of you. And then you get to go and live from this. This week's episode is brought to you by the Impact Nation's Christmas Catalog. Each year, we give you an opportunity to give a gift that will impact a family in the developing world. Through our Christmas catalog, donors like you have provided tens of thousands of people with clean water, farmland, livestock, mosquito nets, and so much more. These gifts of hope are a beautiful expression of a really big gospel that is transforming lives around the world. In this year's catalog, we are so excited to be rescuing pregnant teens from the streets of Kampala and providing business training to help abused and neglected women escape a cycle of poverty. Your copy of this year's catalog is in the mail and should be arriving soon, but if you'd like a sneak peek, check out our brand new online catalog at impactnations.com slash Christmas. And now, back to the podcast. One of the things that John talks about a lot is the world. He talks about it, of course, in, uh, in the gospel, but also in the, in the first epistle, the, the whole thing of the world. Um, sixteen nineteen. Because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. 
in the early church, uh, this separateness from the world was taken very seriously. Uh, this is really clear in the uh, early church fathers' writings. After Constantine, this became really interesting. There was a separation, those who, who didn't get a hold of this and those who became almost more radical in it. Let me ask you this, and it ties back to our talk the other day about what we're seeing, this awakening in the world. Because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, what does this mean for the 21st century believers, followers of Christ? Well, that's a great question. Um, I, I think the world, um, of course, it's the cosmos, and sometimes it means the, 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 the cosmos, physical, and sometimes it means the whole of human race, and sometimes it means uh, something I would say akin to the systems, uh, let's put it this yes. way, the systems of self-salvation that we create inside our delusion. Um, and you see this. I mean, I, I love golf and, and uh, I love the Masters tournament. I always make sure I get to see, you know, the last day. I've been to Augusta a couple of times. Oh, have you? Uh, oh, I haven't. Oh, you're a lucky man. <laughs> yeah. I'll send you a picture when I get to play it one day. But um, but I, it always amazes me how they describe Augusta and the buildup and the advertising. It's, it's in tones and even words of worship. Yes. And what we've done is that because, I mean, we've elevated something like the master's term or golf or football or, you know, money, sex, power, or whatever, we elevate it up and give it almost divine status because we think it can confer something on us that we don't have. And it become, and we become uh, idolaters. We become enslaved to the system. And religion is, is number one. You know, about religion is what humans, humanity does when they don't know that Jesus Christ is in them. We invent a way to God and a way to make the system work. And we draw people in and, and we exhaust them and their resources. And, and then finally, we just discard them over into the orchestra pit. And those uh, precious souls that bother to raise a question and say, wait a minute, this is not sounding like what Jesus was talking about or what the apostles were talking about. They get shamed and they get carted off over to the orchestra pit and uh, but the world systems uh is what has grown up inside the delusion and they are self-salvation schemes they are ways of conferring something on us that we don't think that we have so when jesus is saying that to the disciples look i've chosen you out of these systems out of the world systems of self-salvation or uh, giving yourself glory or giving yourself position worth value security um, prestige. I've chosen you because you um, you are now to walk with me and you will find your dignity and value and worth in me in relationship and participating with what I'm doing. And that's going to be a light shining in these systems so that others can be delivered. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he says um, um, that because of the extraordinary nature of his uh, visions that had been given to him, that the Lord sent a messenger from Satan to buffet him. And he, he prayed three times for the Lord to remove the mess or the, the, uh, the thorn in the flesh is what he called it. And Jesus responded and said, uh, my recognition is sufficient for you. I mean, my grace is sufficient for you. Uh, my friend Julian Fagan has done a lot of work on what was the thorn in Paul's flesh. And he's come to the conclusion that, um, that the issue was that Paul had founded the church at Corinth, 
and that they weren't paying any attention to him. They had kind of gone back to the world system where we need to have this kind of pastor. We need a stand-up guy, a tall guy, a good-looking guy, and a good-looking girl that will come up because the world will respect them and listen to them. And Paul was trying to get their attention. He was completely frustrated that he wasn't being recognized, um, which is a very human thing. But what's stunning is that and when Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, uh, I think what Jesus is saying is that my presence in you and my recognition of you, Paul, is enough, brother. You don't have to be beholden to anybody else's recognition. You, you know, abide in my love for you. And that's enough. That's all you need. Then you're free to go and, and start another church in another you know, town and do whatever and come back to Corinth. And, and so I think that's um, part of the world system. And Jesus is going to defeat it because he enters into it and submits to it and they kill him and he gets to the bottom of it. And he's calling us to stand up and participate with him uh, against the world system, which is including religion. Because in John's gospel, the two big things that the evil one is is using is religion and empire. And they both turn against Jesus in a wholesale sort of way. Um, and he submits to it. That's the most that's the most uh, stunning part to me of of um of um Jesus uh in the in the high priestly prayer the verse twenty six that I quoted earlier, I have made your name known to them and I will make it known that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. When he had said these things, he proceeded forth. And he says, now across the Kidron Valley, and Judas was there, but who was betraying Jesus. And Judas, having received the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all things were coming upon him, proceeded forth and said, whom do you seek? And they answered Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said, I am. And Judas, who was also betraying him, was standing with them. When, therefore, he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Um, of, of John is being very, very careful and deliberate here because there was no chapter divisions, as you both know. Uh, mm -hmm. So Jesus, it goes from I have made you known and I will make you known. So he is going to make the Father known. And and, and it says, when he had said this, he proceeded across, and, and there come, he looks up down the valley, the Kindron Valley, there comes Judas, flanked by a Roman cohort on one side and the temple police on the other, and Judas in the middle. Father, I have made you known, I will make you known. He looks up, and John's description is, and they had uh, lanterns and torches and weapons. And you can see the, the torches uh, shining and reflecting off of the shields and the swords and the spears. And and then I, you notice that he says cohort, a Roman cohort. Mm -hmm. uh, and I looked that up, and it's a battalion. Anywhere from 600 to 1,000 soldiers. Yes. It yes. says it in verse 12. It says... Uh, so the Roman cohort and the commander, and the word for commander is Keliarch, which is a commander of 1,000. So I just say, let's just say 500 Roman soldiers. And John doesn't tell us how many, how many temple police there were. Uh, but Mark says there was a multitude of temple police. So John's painting this picture. As the, this is all coming down on Jesus. And he proceeds forth, and he says, whom do you seek? Jesus Nazarene. And he says, I am. And they all fall out. 
empire, world system, empire, world system, religion, and everybody's on the ground. And I can just see Peter. I mean, Peter, Barney Fife, and I mean, he's just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, you can see it. You can feel it. And then, and then, and then 30 seconds later, it says that the Roman cohort and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And you think, John, what are, what are you trying to tell us here? And he wants us to feel that no one takes my life from me. Your murderous mission will only be fulfilled because of my submission to you mm. in, your, in your delusion. And you are going to beat me and curse me and damn me and mock me and spit on me. And you are going to hoist me up in your anger and, and reject me on that cross. And I'm going to submit to it. And in that way, I'm going to get inside the world system. And I'm going to get inside the religious system. I'm going to get inside of the Adamic delusion. And we're going to start turning the lights on. But just so you know, as you lift me up on the cross in your cursing and rejecting of me, you're actually lifting me up to my father. You are offering me to my father as your response. And he is embracing you at your most apostate, wicked worst and embracing you and is turning this act of your treachery into a new covenant relationship with him. Just so you know, because we're playing three-dimensional chess, you're just playing checkers. And this is a stunning, and it's right there in John. That's what he's trying to, to tell us, is that Jesus makes his way inside of us and inside of our darkness by doing the unthinkable. No one expects God to be submissive. And here you have the Father in the Son, yeah. the Holy Spirit in the Son, bowing down before the world systems, religious version and power empire version, before betrayal. I think, I, I just have a suspicion that when Judas was standing there, I think Jesus winked at him. <laughs> Judas I will submit myself to your betrayal, and my father will accept your betrayal of me, and we're going to turn that into the salvation of the human race. How about that? <laughs> How about that? And, and oh, by the way, oh, by the way, I don't ever go anywhere without my anointing in the Holy Spirit. So as I submit myself to you to be brutalized and damned and cursed, my father's not only making that into a new covenant with you at your apostate worst, but the Holy Spirit is making your darkness her temple, and the lights are going to come on, on the inside. That That's what's happening on the cross. It's not about, it's not about sinners in the hands of an angry God. No. It's, it's about God in the hands of angry sinners and turning an, a, a, an act of submission on Jesus' part into a completely new and relationship with his Father, which does not have our faith at its basis. Are you listening? It has our apostasy as its basis. And until you see, I think, until, until I see that my contribution was not faith, but faithlessness, and my contribution was not, um, was not faithfulness, but apostasy and betrayal. And the father took my betrayal of his son and wove that into this adoption, wove that into this new creation. And so now, when I see that, 
I can begin to believe, not in order to get something from God. I can begin to believe in Jesus and love God, the Father, not to, to, for something to get from him or to exchange, but love him as for himself. And I can begin to love others with that altruistic love. Otherwise, operating with separation, faith, whatever it, we conceive of it to be, is something we do that gets us across. And when we get across, we get the cha-ching. So ultimately, the object of faith is not believing in Jesus. It's believing that if I do these things, I'm going to get the cha-ching. I'm going to get saved. I'm going to get born again. I'm going to get reconciled. I'm going to get healed. I'm all these things. So we're not this, – this is what John is doing. So I want to put you in a place, Peter, Judas – I want to put you in a place to where you realize I screwed it up and I cursed and damned the word of God. And he took my cursing and my damning and turned it into a new relationship with me. That The glue of the kingdom of God is not human faithfulness. It's betrayal. Jesus is the faithful one. That's what he means by righteousness. I'm the one that has the right relationship. So I, that's, that's the gospel. And, man, I see people, the lights go off in people when I preach on this and they realize not only do I not have to do anything to get in, I participated in doing it wrong. And it was my anger and my curse and my religion and my pride. Um, I would have been one of the soldiers mocking Jesus and spitting on him. And Jesus in his humility is a stunning humility, which is his father's humility and the Holy Spirit's humility is allowing his own creation to spit on him and mock him while they are breathing Christological air. If he withdrew, they vanish. And so he gets inside the delusions of, of the world, the flesh and the devil, to use a, 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 the language of First John. He gets inside of those things by submitting to them. And that's, the, that's part of what I call uh, the apostolic swagger. I mean, they're looking at the Roman Empire, and they're thinking, you know, that's a big kind of opposition here. How in the world are we going to possibly advance on that? But they knew that Jesus was already in everyone, and all they had to do was go preach it. And Jesus was going to testify to himself. He's going to do the convincing, uh, not us. It's not about theological argument. And uh, to weave that back around to another part of the conversation, um, about what is happening on earth right now is I think in, in the West that the question has changed. Uh, it, it is changing, but it has changed. And the question used to be who can present uh, the best theological argument with the most proof text from this book and win the argument and demonstrate that they are correct. And that's been the game. Everybody's arguing with everybody. And the Holy Spirit playing three-dimensional chess has changed the question in people's hearts. It's no longer who can present the best theological argument with the most proof text. The question is, who can lead us to experience the life that Jesus Christ promised to us? That's what people are asking. Mm. Now, so, so it's a different argument. And one of the fascinating things about the shack is that the shack was a book written out of one man's discovery that it's not about being right with your information in your head, but it's about encountering the Father, Son, and Spirit at your worst. And he writes this book, and then the system's reaction to the book is to try to prove that it's wrong here. <laughs> and it's just going off inside of people's souls all over the world. 
It's the witness of the Holy Spirit. It's not a theological argument. Although, I told Paul, and I've told him this many times, I think it's a brilliant theological masterpiece. It is a prophetic word to the Western tradition. He goes right around our watchful dragons, as C.S. Lewis talks about, and he's got flipping the light switches on on the inside, and you can't you can't quite you know argue with it because it's going off here inside the human heart. It's parousia. It's the kerygma. Um, so that's that's the way Jesus deals with the world. He submits to it, and um, and then oh, there's this thing called the resurrection. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine. Paul says that 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 if the powers, the principalities and powers, uh, Ophis and, and the serpent and his and his minions, if they had known that God was like this and that the way to victory was by submission, they would have never killed the Lord of Glory. And Paul and Peter both talk about that. They would have known. They thought they were getting getting rid of Jesus because that's what you do in 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 terms of the world systems. You dominate. You eradicate. Yes. And they, that's the way they operate. So it's the greatest move in cosmic history. And no one saw it coming. And even Jesus' disciples didn't understand it until after the resurrection. And then they go, oh, my goodness. Now we see all along. And it's all, in, the, in the synoptic gospels, again and again, Jesus says, boys, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the, and the rulers of the law are going to condemn me. And they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify. He says that again and again and again. One time Peter says, this is never going to happen to you, Lord. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and uh, he says, get behind me, Satan. And that was in the same sequence where Peter, where Jesus had asked the guys, who do people say that? Who do you say that I am? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, but blessed are you. Uh, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then he says, we're going up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over and crucified and condemned. And Peter says, no. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So just that quick. You can see the fear come upon uh, Peter and he reacts and he's trying to control Jesus. And she says, you got you got this backwards. God wins by submission. He rules sovereignly his cosmos by submitting himself to it and letting it do its worst. And actual in, in John in uh, verse 18, four, which is a very different view of sovereignty than when I grew up with in Calvinism. Um, in 18, four, it says, Jesus, knowing all things were coming upon him, proceeded forth. I think that links back. I think that links back to John 1, 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, not one thing came into being. I think what John is saying is that the entire creation is turned against Jesus, and it's coming upon him, and he's going to submit to it. And in this way, in this way, sovereignly, um, in this way, sovereignly uh, conquered evil and death and, and, and the delusion, the world, the flesh, and the evil one. And that's the incredible paradox of the cross, you know, Christos Victor, that that I think largely the church, the evangelical church, has had so much trouble getting their head around that paradox, which is mm-hmm. which has led us into what we talked about over an hour ago, the the, the legal uh, mindset. But it's it is it is absolutely remarkable, right? Uh, our friend Brad talks a lot about canonic love and it's this it's what you're talking about it is the victory is found in not fighting back the victory 
isn't just absorbing it and remaining. So it's uh, it's excellent. And yet again and again, <laughs> our humanness, our human response is to take up arms. I mean, you... You, you just look at the way uh, the evangelical movement of North America will, you know, fight, 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 fight politically, uh, socioeconomically. Like we just we get all up in arms, and and yet Christ's example over and over again is that self-emptying. I mean, I mean the the washing of the disciples' feet. Yeah. Uh, why? Well, it's human nature, my, I guess. It, Isaiah, Isaiah said it. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Yeah. And my ways are not your ways. And, okay, if our thoughts are not God's thoughts and his ways are not our ways are not his ways, we've got some changing to do. And uh, J.B. Torrance, my professor, used to talk about uh, romanticism, nationalism, and religion. And I, it took me a while to figure out what he was getting at. And I realized this is the unholy trinity that has seized and become a veil in North America. Romanticism, nationalism, wedded with religion. And so you can get you can have somebody stand up with a great big old Jimmy Swaggart Bible and hold it down and talk about the United States and wave the flag and mm-hmm. somebody's the star-spangled banner. And all of a sudden, it's it's like a spiritual thing that goes off in people and people cry. Uh, But Jesus has not called us to nationalism and romanticism and religion. He's called us to participate in his ways. Yes. Well, okay, what are your ways, Jesus? That's the question. What are your ways? Uh, Teach me your ways. That's what David cries out for. Uh, I can, can, like James says, there's two two wisdoms. There's the wisdom of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and then there's human wisdom. And these are not running parallel. They're, They're clashing. It makes no sense to us. At one point in my life, I remember thinking, okay, here's what I would naturally think, and here's what I'd naturally do. Stop and do the opposite, and you're probably pretty close to what Jesus is doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, but let me make one last point about the submission thing, because this is important. Um, the, it's not submission to the world system and powers on our part. Our part is to submit to what Jesus is doing. And he's the one that's conquering the light shining in the darkness. And he doesn't always call us to uh, submit ourselves to uh, certain situations. I mean, today he may not. And I've actually had had occasions where I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, do not even mention the name Jesus here in this conversation. And found out later that the reason, because the guy, you know, grew up in a certain church and his father was a pastor and was very abusive and all of that was tagged emotionally in terms of traumatic memories and associations with the name Jesus in this guy's head. Don't use the name of Jesus here. You know, sometimes he doesn't tell us to. Uh, That's a moment by moment walking with him. And what he says to you about today may be very different than what he says to me. Um, mm, It's beautiful. Mm, Yeah. You know what? This is a change of world. (laughs) Um, we need to wrap up for time but i want to be fair to our listeners because we've had a few listeners send in questions uh uh, around a specific topic which is the baptism of the holy spirit Hmm. uh john chapter 133 uh john the baptist says you know i'm baptizing with water but then the lord reveals to him hey the one on whom my holy spirit descends he's going to baptize with the holy spirit um what do you, Baxter, what do you think that that meant? What did it mean that Jesus was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit? 
He's including us in his eternal anointing in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's, all of the Holy Spirit's gifts. Um, uh, some years ago, I was, I was preaching, and this lady comes up to me, uh, and she's crying. And she's very upset. And I said, I said, um, well, just take a deep breath and explain to me what's going on. And she said, there are two churches in our community where I live. Um, and we have both been praying and fasting for the Holy Spirit to fall on us. And the Holy Spirit fell on the other church, but didn't fall on us and left us out. And I'm just distraught. And she's, she's cradling her little baby when she's crying and she's telling me this. And I said to her, I said, that's a bit ironic that you think that that happened at that church is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I said, do you not realize that this child that you're holding in your arm in 10,000 years from this moment will still call you mom? That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is it through your body and through your participation, a divine human creation has come into being that in Jesus Christ will never go away. The phenomenon over here and phenomenon over there. So it's like you got it. We have to take our sacred secular uh, church glasses off before we can understand the baptism of the spirit. The spirit is, is come to do one thing. And that is to bear witness in our spirits of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has come to do one thing, and that is to give us his eyes so that we can know his father with him and thus live in the spirit and live in in uh, in Jesus, participate with him. What happens is we have an, an extraordinary moment in your journey. I've had several in mind. And then we take what happened. Maybe it was speaking in tongues. Maybe we saw a miracle. Maybe we, you know, uh, and, and that becomes associated with us as the baptism in the spirit. And then we start saying, well, if you hadn't had this experience, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And I've had people ask me, I've had, I had a pastor tell me one time, he says, you are obviously an, an anointed man. Uh, have you ever spoken in tongues? Because in his worldview, speaking in tongues is a proof that you have the Holy Spirit. But he just admitted because he listened to me speaking that I was anointed in the spirit. He just did, you know, but that's what we do is we and so no, no, no. What we have been given in Jesus is Jesus himself as the anointed one. With all of the gifts and the life of the Holy Spirit, the Nicene Creed calls the Holy Spirit the Lord and giver of life. So the baptism of the Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is in Jesus. And Irenaeus says this um, in his book Against the Heresies, first time I ever even crossed my mind. He uses the language of that the Holy Spirit is accustoming himself or herself to dwell with us. In the journey of Jesus, as Jesus is growing and developing, as he's fine, the Holy Spirit is, so to speak, learning uh, how to abide in us. Um, and that's the gift that's given. It was always intended to be given before the foundation of the world, is that we are included in Jesus' anointing in the Holy Spirit. So I tell people uh, why, especially back in the days when people talked about the second blessing, um, I'm like, second blessing? Why would we stop it too? We have been given the infinite creative resources of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's not a se- so baptism of the Holy Spirit to me is the other side of our inclusion in Jesus. Jesus has, has included us in his relation with his father. And that means in his anointing in the Holy Spirit. And that happened. The, the proof of that baptism um, is Pentecost. 
because Jesus in the ascension lifts us up, takes us home, sits us in him face to face with the Father in the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit's poured out on all flesh. And now we're learning to live in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, let, me, let me tell one, one quick story um, about that. Uh, I think this is a very, very uh, critical point. And it, we're so prone to do to create things, and so and uh, and name these things as that's the baptism of the spirit. I was I was working on my PhD in Aberdeen, Scotland. We lived in a little town called Bankery, and I was sitting at my study one day reading reading um, Galatians, where Paul says that because you are sons of God, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, "Abba, Father." And I I got down on my knees and I said, "Lord, I know." I got a long way to go, but if but if there's any way, could one day I experience whatever is meant there by Abba Father being cried in our hearts? And I, I was serious, and I was in earnest, and I literally heard the Lord laugh. And I thought, I, I said, what what's going on? And I heard this conversation, Baxter, where are you? I'm in Scotland. What are you doing in Scotland? Working on my PhD in theology. I could feel him going, hmm. So what's your dissertation on? I said, my dissertation is on knowing God and the theology of T.F. Torrance. And he says, so you, of your own accord, by your own resources, have just suddenly taken up an interest in my father. And I thought, Holy smokes. You have been sharing your Abba Father with me since before I was even born. And I have been fascinated with your relation with the Father. And I have given everything I could to come and try to understand it. And here I am praying that I could experience something that I've been living in. And it brought me to this place. And the irony of this, like, oh, my goodness, man. It's like, you know, at a similar time, I was, we went to a church, a Presbyterian church of Scotland, of course, and uh um, I was sitting there in church one Sunday morning, and I was holding the bulletin, and, and I just broke out in this sort of fit of laughter. I didn't even know about such things at the time, but I mean, my wife's looking at me like, are you losing the plot here? And I mean, I'm, I'm like, and I couldn't figure out what what was going on, and I almost got up and left, but eventually I got calmed down and got through the service, and that afternoon, I, I said, she was saying, what, what happened to you, you know? I'm sure she thought you remembered some joke or something. I said, no, I don't know what it was. And that night it came to me. Uh, the bulletin, the order of service. First thing on it is is the invocation. Because we're going to invoke the presence and blessing of God on this, our service of worship. Let me translate that. We are going to assume that we're separated from God and Jesus. And in our own name and because of our own goodness, we all got up out of bed this morning and we came to church to worship a distant deity. And it's suddenly just the irony of this is that if Jesus withdrew himself or if the baptism of the spirit was withdrawn from us, we would be catatonic and never leave our house. And we would never think we'd be so frozen in fear. We'd never think of anyone, let alone doing something for God. And it's the, the irony is we're going to now invoke the presence as if we would even get out of bed without it. So before we can have grandiose discussions of the baptism of the Spirit, we've got to make sure that we're not assuming separation and then identifying certain things as the baptism of the Spirit. It is our inclusion in Jesus. Therefore, we got out of bed this morning. Therefore, we run some risks. Therefore, we, we, we talk and we share and we pray and we live. And we're living in that. And that is the, the, the Holy Spirit. And sometimes 
it's extraordinary to us. It, extraordinary things happen, like people that are dead get raised to life as expressions of that. But most of the time, it's, it's conception. It's motherhood. It's fatherhood. It's friendship. It's being there at 2.30 in the morning and the phone goes off because somebody's in real trouble. You know, it's not living in the spirit of fear and self-centered, but the spirit of Jesus, which is the spirit of love and, and other centeredness. So that's, I mean, in, in the short piece, that's the best I can do on the baptism of the spirit. Just be that's careful what you identify it with. <laughs> that's good. And well, ask the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I tell you what, here's one better. Ask Jesus to be your rabbi and ask him specifically to teach you about the Holy Spirit, how he sees the Holy Spirit, and then uh, be prepared to laugh. <laughs> Very good. Well, Baxter, we have come to the end of our two hours. Thank you so much uh, for yeah, thank you. just spending time with us and just pouring out that wisdom and revelation. Uh, we'll be doing this again uh, in the future. Will you join us again sometime? Oh, yeah. Awesome. Uh, we can do it tomorrow. If you're not. Uh, I'm, I'm all in. This is this is beautiful, and I, I'm I'm I can't wait to meet you guys face to face. Indeed, and Love and be place. involved in something together. The Holy Spirit's got playing three dimensional chess, and it's going to be a joy to see it unfold. <laughs> all right, uh, Baxter. All right. Is there any anything uh, you'd like to plug? Anything you got coming up that you'd like to direct people to, or how can they follow you on social media or whatnot? Um, you can go to our website, which is. Pericresis.org. Um, as far as um, I'm actually taking a break now between now and Christmas, I'm doing some writing. I'm working on the sequel to Patmos. I'm working on a, uh, an essay on John from which I drew some of that material about the submission of Jesus. Uh, I've got two new, three new children's books that are two are done, and I'm getting artwork done. And, but mainly, just have a get Patmos and have a read of it. And, um, and and buy an extra copy and give it to friends or keep one in your car and ask the Holy Spirit, who, tell me when I'm supposed to give this away. Because mm-hmm. it's all that we talked about today is crammed into that story of Patmos in one way or another. Um, and then, um, but it, we're having our website redone and, and the new one or the, the updated one is going to have um, a list of where I'm traveling and what all's going on with me in the new year. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Impact Nations podcast. Again, our thanks to Baxter Kruger for being our guest. I'm sure many of you have questions that have come up from this discussion, so email them to podcast at impactnations.com, and we'll be sure to discuss them in an upcoming episode. In the meantime, be sure to have a look at the 2018 Christmas catalog by visiting impactnations.com slash Christmas. Thanks, and have a great week.